All right, last week we <clears throat> studied uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Deuteronomy. We left off with chapter 2, uh, talking about how the people of Israel went around Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And these are what's often called the Transjordanic tribes, or those tribes east of the Jordan. And that uh, took us through chapter 2. We, remember we studied about Sihon and the territory that he uh, that was taken. He was displaced from, from his land. If you recall the uh, map that we looked at last week, Sihon, this area would be primarily given to the tribes of Reuben and Gad. <clears throat> if you, I don't have the map back up here, but if you think about the area east of the Jordan, Sihon would be that southern area that Reuben and Gad would uh, take. All right, let's go to chapter 3. We'll, I'll direct your minds first to the questions on chapter 3. How many cities were taken in Og's kingdom? 60. 60 cities. It does, you look at a map and you really don't think there would be room for that many cities in this area, but 60 cities. And describe... These cities. Fortified. These are not easily taken, are they? Not, uh, not just a cakewalk for the people of Israel. These are high walls and they're fortified cities. What did they keep as spoil from these cities? Livestock. The livestock, the cattle. And what do you suppose they would do while we're on that point? What would they do with livestock, with cattle? Offer them to God, perhaps? Offer some of these to, to God and sacrifices? Describe Og's bed. This is Og's kingdom that we're looking at now in chapter 3. Deuteronomy chapter 3. Describe Og's bed. Nine cubits, and how wide? Four cubits. Four cubits wide. We would think of this in terms of feet being about uh, 13 and a half feet long, roughly, depending on how you uh, determine what a cubit is, exactly what a cubit is, but probably 13 and a half feet long, six feet wide. Quite a large bed, isn't it? 13 and a half feet, you think about some <clears throat> bedrooms that might measure across from wall to wall, 13, 14 feet. Uh, some bedrooms are maybe 12 feet or so, but some bedrooms the, from wall to wall would be about 13 and, and, and a half feet or so. At this point, what were the stated borders? Look at verse 12. We're going from the area uh, where Sihon was, and now we're going northward. Verse 12 says, from Aror, which is the valley by Arnon. The Arnon, remember we, last week we talked about the Arnon and the Jabbok rivers. And we're going northward here now into the land of Gilead. What did Moses request of God? Entrance. Entrance into where? Land of Canaan. He wanted to go into the land of Canaan. 
And this is not the first or the last time we will hear about that subject uh, regarding Moses. Now, if you will, let's uh, immerse ourselves in the text. And uh, beginning at Deuteronomy chapter 3, we come now to Og. Now, recall what we're doing here in some respects is looking at a summary of the book of, De- uh, book of Numbers. We're going back to the latter part of the book of Numbers and recounting that journey. So in the first three chapters of Deuteronomy, the people are looking back and considering where they've been and how they've gotten to this point where they are. Verse 1, they come to uh, the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us. He and all his people at the battle at Edrei. And uh, so Og is drawing a line in the sand and saying, no, you're not coming and getting me. He is putting up a fight, isn't he? Verse 2, I have, God says, don't fear. I have delivered him into thy hand, his people, his land, into thy hand. Pretty much the same thing that he'd done for Sihon, right? He had delivered Sihon into their hand, and now he is delivering Og into their hand as well. Notice the the assurance that God is giving them along the way, or had given them along the way, of their victory in battle. The latter part of verse 2, Thou shalt do unto him as you did unto Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered into our hand Og also. And then we talk about the cities. We had a question on that. Verse 4, there were 60 cities, three score cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. And these cities, verse 5, were fortified. They were strong. There were not easy takings. Which, what does that tell us about the, the battle? When God says, in other words, if God says, I have delivered them into your hand, does that always mean that it's an easy journey or an easy trek or an easy battle? No, it doesn't. God gives us assurances as well. He says, you can do this. But it does not always mean that it's going to be easy for us, does it? It's not always going to be an easy journey or an easy battle for us. In the same way for the Israelites. And then we utterly destroyed, verse 6 and verse 7 talks about, we even uh, destroyed those that were women and little children by the direction of God. And uh, you go on down to the latter part of that paragraph, and we see the dimensions of Og's bed. Now, why are we told uh, how fortified the cities are? Why are we told how large Og's bed is? What does this do for the Israelites that are encamped in the plains of Moab? They're getting ready to go over into Canaan. What will this do for those people? It would, pardon? Increase their faith and courage. Increase their faith. Give them more assurance. It's interesting to me that Moses spends a little time here, the first three chapters, recounting the journey. Look what God has done for you so far. Look how far he's brought you. We talked about the Edomites, the Ammonites, Moab, how they had also displaced giants. Well, God is saying, look what you've done. You've displaced Sihon and Og and all this 
area that I'm going to give you east of the Jordan River. This is all for the assurance of the people, the reassurance of the people, to instill in them faith, to motivate them to continue. So the bed of uh, Og, as we see in verse 11, about uh, 13 and a half feet wide, or 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. <clears throat> you think about a man, we don't, we're not told exactly how tall he is, but if you think about a bed accommodating a person like that and, and give or take a, even if you just chop off a couple of feet <laughs> for, uh, you know, wiggle room or whatever, this is a pretty large person, very large person. And this is told to us so we can see that there's giants in the land and that the people of God have already conquered this area where these giants are. I would, I would take out a tape measure sometime <clears throat> and measure out 13 and a half feet long. Just consider about how long that is sometime uh, this week. Verse 12. Verse 12 through 17, we're given the actual area that they would occupy. These are the Transjordanic tribes. So we've looked at verse 1 through 11, Og, and the area of Bashan. This is the area north, on the north, you might say northeastern part of the area. And this land is for the Transjordanic tribes. Now, verse 12 through 17 gives us those territories. Verse 12 uh, all this and half the hill country of Gilead and the cities thereof gave I unto the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the rest of Gilead, and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og gave I unto half the tribe of Manasseh. Now, these are the territories that he gives. Now, verse 18 through uh, 22, looking at that as a paragraph, if you think about God giving them this land, what does he say? is the qualification for having that land. Verse 18 through 22. You can have this land, but what? Remain faithful. Remain faithful. What do you first have to do? What are they going to do with the women and the children? Leave them on that side as they conquer the rest of the world. Leave them there and... Those, the men of war, will have to go over the Jordan, help their brethren fight. So in verse 18 through 22, God says you must help your brethren. Verse 18, he says, I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God hath given you this land to possess it, and ye shall pass over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel, all the men of valor. But your wives and your little ones, they'll stay back, and you go and fight for the rest of your brethren. You fight, actually verse 20 says, you fight until your brethren have the land that they are allotted. And then you shall return, the last part of verse 20 says, then shall you return every man unto his possession which I have given you. And as I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, thine eyes have seen all that the Lord your God hath done. This makes me think of passages such as, bear one another's burdens, bear ye one another's burdens. These tribes, these Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh 
are told to bear, help bear the burden of their brethren as they go into the land of Canaan. You know, it'd be easy for them to sit back and say, well, we've got our land, so, you know, we're going to stay here, stay put where it's peaceful and we can begin our life. But no, God says you must consider your brethren. You must go with them. You must go and fight. You must bear one another's burdens. By the way, where is that passage in the New Testament that says, bear ye one another's burdens? Anybody recall where that is found? In the New Testament? Galatians 6 and verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens. Bear ye one another's burdens. We are to be a people just like that. We're to bear one another's burdens. And we must help our brethren as they did. And then we can take our rest when it is appropriate. Now for some reason, in verse 23 through 29, Moses brings up this idea again that I have not been allowed to go into the land of Canaan. Uh, Well, let's start at verse 24. O Lord Jehovah, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness, thy strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or earth that can do these works? Keep that thought in mind there, the last part of verse 24. What God is there? Is there a God anywhere that can do such a thing? We're going to talk about that more in the next chapter But just keep that in the back of your mind for the time being. Verse 25, he says, let me go over, I pray thee. God is saying, or Moses is saying to God, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond the Jordan, that goodly mountain in Lebanon. And how did God respond to Moses' request? No. Actually, he went a little bit further than just simply saying no. He said no and don't ask anymore. Don't ask again. You know, think about a parent that's trying to discipline a child. You know, ask me once or twice. But, you know, after that, you ask me again, I'm going to tell you, don't ask me anymore. So that's, that's it's similar to what uh, we see here. The last part of verse 26, God says, Let it suffice thee. Speak no more to me of this matter. Get thee up into the top of Pisgah. Lift up your eyes. Westward, northward, eastward, and so forth, and you shall see this land, but you will not go over. Now I want you to think about the attitude of Moses. So far we've, we've talked about for the last few months Moses, and we've seen his growth from the beginning of Exodus. Think about the Moses that we were seeing at the beginning of the book of Exodus, and especially when he... Uh, goes to the land of Midian for 40 years and God comes to him and is Moses willing and ready to go? No. Does he have to be talked into it? He does. He has to be convinced, doesn't he? Do you think about that Moses in Exodus 3 and 4 that was very reluctant to go and you think about the growth that he has gone through up until this point in time? major growth is the spiritual maturity that he's gone through to get to this point and you think about your journey with God and think about not being allowed to do something that culminates in in some satisfaction and rejoicing with the people of God that they're in the land of Canaan 
Certainly that would hurt Moses, wouldn't it? That would be difficult to, to take, difficult to swallow. But God said it was for their sakes. And Moses even acknowledged that this is for your sake. But I want you to go back and think about, about just the attitude that Moses expressed here. Moses in, this, in the book of Deuteronomy is being told, you're not going over the land of Canaan, Joshua is. And he knows all this, but still he has to preach to the people, motivate the people, encourage them, lay out the laws. And how many of us would just sit back and say, well, I can't go to the land of Canaan, so I'm just going to sit back and wait to die. How many of us would just sit back and do that? It would be all too easy just to sit back and say, well, I've gotten you this far. I'm, you know, I'm going to take it easy now. And I, or maybe he, out of frustration, just sit back and say, well, you know, just so much frustration that I can't go to the land of Canaan. You know, we could have a bad attitude about that, couldn't we? We could develop a bad attitude. But what does Moses do? Moses is called upon at a time like this to to inspire the people. You know, sometimes we're not allowed to do exactly what we want to do, but God puts us sometimes in a strategic place that we can have influence if we will look for different ways to serve God. You know, sometimes we have maybe a tunnel vision. We want to do just, we want to do this for God. But God puts us in a different place Perhaps we need to open our eyes and use that as an opportunity to serve God in a different way. Moses was called on to do that. And Moses accepted. Moses inspired the people. Continue to inspire them. Give them the commands. Uplift the hands of Joshua that's going to take his place. That would be hard to do, wouldn't it? Joshua's going to take your place. You've done all this for all these 40 years now. But you can't go. But I'll tell you what, God says you can do. You can instill in the minds and the hearts of these people to obey their God and to lift up the hands and follow Joshua into the land of Canaan. That's your job. That'd be hard for us to swallow, wouldn't it? And I want to tie two things together here before we leave this chapter. The attitude of the the Transjordan tribes in going over Jordan to help their brethren to do what's best for them. And that's exactly what Moses was called upon to do too, wasn't it? To do what's best for the whole assembly of God's people. Both of these groups, the Transjordanic tribes and Moses as well, is called upon to do that. You do what's best for the people of God. It may not be what you chose to do or what you think is best to do, but God calls upon us to do that, and we must do it. Any thoughts on chapter 3 before we leave that? Yes. I find it interesting that Joshua was part of the calf and the making of the calf and all that, and, and even lied about it. 
But yet now, God's putting him in charge of the people of Israel. God forgives us, don't he? Aaron has, Aaron, uh, yeah. And, uh, well, Aaron died and on the way out of the wilderness. And then, uh, but it is interesting that uh, you think about Joshua's been there from day, day one, very early. And he's learned a lot, I'm sure, at the, by the side of Moses. Any other thoughts on chapter 3? All right, let's get into chapter 4. We've got a lot of material here in chapter 4. First, the questions. A couple of the questions here on chapter 4. Find a New Testament passage that is parallel to verse 2. Revelation 22. Revelation 22, 18 through 19. What else? 2 John 9 and 10. Whoever goes onward and bideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. That's very similar to this. Revelation 22, 18 and 19 actually a little bit more closely uh, match it. But any other passages that you'd like to mention? All right. Second question there. They were to take heed to what? Verse 9, take heed to yourselves, keep your soul diligently. What are the consequences of not doing so? They would forget the works of God. They would forget. There's that word. That's one of our key words we're looking for. They would forget the words of God, the commandments of God. How could they prolong their days in the land? Okay. I want you to think uh, just briefly here, chapter 1 through 3, we're looking back in their history. And up until this point in time, some of the tribes have their land already. But if you think about in Genesis chapter 12, God gave a covenant to Abraham. He gave the covenant, sometimes we divide that covenant into three portions, the land, or the, the nation, the land, and the seed promise. When was the nation promise, when did it seem to be fulfilled or when did, had the people become a great and a multitude of people? At what point do we see that in their history? In Egypt, in Egypt yes, in Egypt. And uh, by Exodus 1, the people were called a great multitude. Now this is 640 years after Abraham, 640 years. Abraham did not get to see this take place. When did they begin to take the land? Well, I'm going to go ahead and give you this one because we could kind of uh, debate on this one a little bit. Joshua chapter 4, they actually go into the land of Canaan. You could say, well, they didn't actually conquer the land uh, until the end of Joshua. Uh, so, but somewhere in Joshua, we'll say, they, they receive, or uh, that becomes to fruition and then in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, the, the seed promise. This promise is to you and your children and all that are afar off. Acts 2, verse 39. And we see that fulfilled there. Sometimes I like to go back and just kind of rehearse where we've been, where we are in, in such a covenant as the covenant to Abraham before we go uh, further in the book here. 
Now Deuteronomy chapter 4 can be called a summary of the covenant. If you were to take the entire book of Deuteronomy and squish it down into a nutshell, Deuteronomy is, covers that book. Very, very good summary. I like to call it the way of life and the way of destruction also. In the first part of the chapter, he gives them the way of life. Actually, he spends eight verses talking about the way of life. And he spends pretty much the rest of the chapter talking about the consequences and the way of destruction if you do not follow the way of life. Now, the way of life, beginning in verse 1 through 14. Deuteronomy chapter 4, Now, O Israel, hearken unto the statutes, the ordinances which I teach you to do them, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God, of, uh, which Lord the God of your fathers giveth you. You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And there's those passages that we mentioned in our answer that parallel that in the New Testament. Now verse 3, Moses brings up an event in their recent history What event is that that he brings up? I want you to remember what happened at where? Baal Peor, verse 3. Remember what happened at Baal Peor. If you remember that in Numbers chapter 25, those that uh, Balaam talked Balak into, uh, he says, I know how you can get the people of Israel. Send the Midianitish women in there, and they did, and they, along with their idolatry, they ate, and they, had, they were fornicating with these people. And before it's all over, 24,000 die. That happened at Baal Peor. Moses is saying, don't forget that. And partly because uh, this is, a lot of this is wrapped up in the idea and the subject of idolatry. So verse 3, he says, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from the midst of thee. Don't forget that. 24,000 died there. It would be hard to forget that. But, God, but Moses says, don't forget that. Remember that. And remember that because what he says in verse 3 is going to have a lot to do with what we see in the rest of the chapter, the subject. Now let's go on down to uh, verse 9. Verse 9, he begins to shift the idea from uh, this way of life. And he, wants, he says, I want you to take heed to yourself. And how many times can we do anything really unless we first take care of ourselves? We can't do anything properly righteously and justly unless we first take care of ourselves and then we can do other things beyond that. Verse 9 he says, take heed to yourself, keep thy soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes saw, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life and make them known unto thy children and thy children's children. We're going to make a a footnote here in the last part of verse 9, and we're going to talk about this more next week. But notice what he says. Not only make them known to your children, but make them known to who? Your grandchildren. Make sure that they know. Now, how if you don't 
If you're not with your grandchildren every day, how do you make sure that your grandchildren are taught in the ways of God? How can that happen? Through your children. We're going to talk about this more. Keep that note, keep that as a footnote in your mind. We'll talk about it next week, actually. Teach them, teach your children, and teach your children's children by teaching your children. It goes on from one generation to the next. In the day that God, verse 10, the day that uh, thou stoodest before the Lord, thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said, assemble your people. And he's going to talk about a time when they were at Mount Sinai. In verse 12 and 13, he says, what did you see when you were at Mount Sinai? Did you see me? Did you see an image of me? Did you see a picture of me? Did you see the form of me? Verse 12 and 13, he says, no, you didn't see me. You saw fire, but you didn't see me. Now think about that, and he's going to take it from that subject to talk about idolatry. In verse 15, he goes all out and hammers that point of idolatry to them. Has that been a problem for them so far? It's already been a a problem that they have dealt with several times, uh, idolatry, in some form or fashion. And God says, verse 15, Take ye therefore good heed to yourselves, for ye saw no manner of form on that day. When at Mount Sinai, when the people were at the foot of the mountain, Moses says, you did not see any form of me, so how can you take or how can you make an image that represents me if you did not see an image there? And he said, you couldn't, could you? We can't do that. Probably one additional reason that God did not manifest himself in, in any form like that because he knew that they would form they would uh, carry off into idolatry now notice verse 16 17 and 18 he says don't make any graven image in the form of a figure male or female don't make an image in the form of a beast of anything that creeps on the earth of anything that flies in the heaven don't make images like that that represent god First of all, you haven't seen any form like that. And this flies in the face of the second commandment, the second of the Ten Commandments, which actually you could probably flip over a, a page and see in, in Deuteronomy 5, verse uh, Deuteronomy 5, verse 8, there where he uh, restates the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not make unto thee a graven image that is in the heaven above and the earth beneath. Now go on down to verse 21, Deuteronomy 4, verse 21. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swear that I should not go over the Jordan, that I should not go in into that land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, but I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but ye shall go over and possess that good land. Now take heed, notice verse 23, take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God. We've seen several times already in this chapter Take heed, take heed, be careful, be careful, lest you forget, lest you forget, lest you forget. Do we get the point? 
Moses is trying to say, take heed, don't forget. Now, last, uh, in verse 24, he says, for your God is a devouring or a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. He wants full devotion, full worship to him. He doesn't want it divided. He doesn't want to divide the worship and attention with some idolatrous practices, some idol God that you have. Now, verse 25 through 31. What are the consequences of doing so? Let's just say they're given to idolatry. What does God say are going to be the consequences of doing that practice? You will perish off the land. You'll be utterly destroyed. I'm going to give you this land, but in generations to come, if you are given to idolatry, Moses says you will soon perish. Notice verse 26. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto you go over the land, over the Jordan rather, to possess it. So is their possession of the, of the land of Canaan a conditional promise? It is, isn't it? Do they have to obey? They have to obey. They have to be obedient. God's going to be merciful, but they have to be obedient. This is a conditional promise, and we see here the consequences of not listening to what God has required. Now, when they, let's just say, when we fast forward here, and, and he says... If you go into captivity, is there any hope after captivity? In verse 30, what could they do? They could repent and be, uh, find grace in the eyes of God. Verse 30, when thou art in tribulation, all these things are come upon you. Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom before we can go up. Verse 30, you have all these things happen unto you in the latter days. Thou shalt return to the Lord thy God and hearken unto his voice. For the Lord thy God, verse 31, is a merciful God. He will not fail thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. It's one reason I brought up the covenant to Abraham just a moment ago. He will not forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. So to get to Acts 2.39, is God going to make sure that's fulfilled? Yes, he is. But you're going to suffer if you are given to idolatry. You're going to be displaced. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to lose the land that I give you. In... Thinking about the idea of idolatry is is that a problem for us today? If we think about the New Testament, <clears throat> think about ourselves, is idolatry an issue for us today? Yeah. I mean, the answer is there when Moses tells the children of Israel, "Don't make an idol in the form of anything." So anything can become an idol. Mm-hmm. Anything can become an idol. Colossians 3, covetousness is idolatry, right? But there are other occasions where we do see idolatry mentioned in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1 is is condemned there in Romans chapter 1. Galatians 5, verse 19 and following, he mentions the works of the flesh that are manifest. 
And one of those mentioned in Galatians 5, verse 19, following, maybe verse 20, is the sin of idolatry. We can be given to idolatry. It comes in many forms, as you say. I think sometimes uh, about a, even a, a picture of Jesus. Sometimes we may not bow down and worship a golden idol like the Buddhists or the Hindus might do. But we are given sometimes to idolatry. We hold up maybe a picture of Jesus. How do we know that's a picture of Jesus? I, I knew a man several years ago that had a picture of Jesus on his wall, the, the common long-haired picture of Jesus that you see many times. And, and he says, that really brings me comfort and security and a good feeling when I look at that picture. That's not deity, is it? God gave us no form whatsoever. There's no, nothing by any stretch of the imagination we can do to create a likeness that is like our God. Yes? You started to say by it's, um, speaking of covetousness as idolatry that um, you know, this starts to hint at the fact that it's something that's a problem with the heart. Um, Ezekiel 14 supports that by saying, you know, God indicted the people of Israel by saying, he told them to say, son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. So it doesn't actually have to be something you could physically hold on to because mm -hmm. there's, it's a problem that is rooted in the heart. Mm -hmm. And then we get down to the very essence of that. We define that as anything that is between us and God, and, and it could be anything, yes, but... But even idolatry, as we're described here, can affect us today. All right, verse 32 through 40. Verse 32, ask now, Moses says, ask of the days that are past, which were before thee, since the day that God created man. Go all the way back to the days of Adam. Moses says, go all the way back to Adam. And he continues there in the next verse or two. Has there ever been any such people that have enjoyed the blessings that you do? That have had a God that has done such things as your God has done for you? And the answer is what? No. Has there ever been any nation that has had such a God as your God? That has done for them such great things as he has for you. You know, Moses, I think, here is trying to inspire these people to obedience, to faithful obedience, to, to have the courage to do what God has required of them to do. By the way, I, is it optional to go into the land of Canaan? Is that an option? Can you go if you want to? If you don't want to, that's okay? No. God says, I have given you this land. Take it. Has there ever been such a nation that has received such from the Lord? You think about the New Testament has... In the book of Ephesians, you don't have to turn there, but the book of Ephesians lists uh, just numerous blessings that we have in Christ. One after another. We have hope. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have the Spirit, 
the word, all of these blessings, and it goes on and on, these blessings that we have. And I think about a passage like that when I read something that we're reading here tonight. Has there ever been a God that has done so much for his people as you? And if you read on in Ephesians chapter 1, about verse 19, he begins to talk about the idea of what was the ultimate that God did to show you his power that manifested his power, his love, his grace, and his mercy. What did he do? He gave Jesus to redeem us. That's another word in that chapter. The redemption of man from the bondage of sin. Now you keep that thought in mind and you go back to what we've seen here that has occurred since the time of Abraham. The people were in bondage. They have been delivered. They have been blessed now in so many ways as he's describing here. And you see why the Bible uses the deliverance from Egypt so much to describe and to make us understand what God has done. And what God's doing is taking a chosen people and he's delivering them from bondage, showing what he can do. He's manifesting his power, not only to his people, but to the world. He's manifesting this so we can see and understand his power, his love, his grace, and his mercy. And that we, by that, we can better understand the sacrifice of Jesus. He's done the same thing in the New Testament for you and I. He's manifested that power, the love, the grace, and the mercy by giving us Jesus, saving us from the bondage of sin. And we, you see that parallel about God saved you out of Egypt. You see that throughout the Bible, over and over and over again. And we're to get that and understand that. that that's what, what God is trying to teach us. Now, go on down to, in this chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, we go on down to verse 40. And thou shalt keep his statutes and his commandments which I command thee this day, that it may go well with thee and with thy children after thee, and that thou mayest prolong thy days in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee forever. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically I think chapter 30, he's going to list blessings and curses. And he says, follow the ways of blessings. Follow the blessings. And he says, in Deuteronomy 30, and basically what he's saying here is choose life. Choose the pathway of life. That's why I call this the chapter of way of life, the way of destruction. Choose life. It's a choice you can make and you must make. Choose life. That it may, as he words it here, verse 40, that it may go well with thee and with thy children after thee. And we may say by extension, thy children's children as well. We'll uh, leave here the cities of refuge. In the last part of the chapter, uh, we see the cities of refuge here on the eastern side of the Jordan, Golan, Ramoth, and Bezer. Uh, this would be for those that had uh, killed someone unintentionally. And later on, we don't see this here, but on the other side of the Jordan, we have Kedesh, Shechem, and Hebron.
those cities of refuge. Any parting thoughts before we close tonight? Any additional thoughts? All right, appreciate the class, appreciate your attention.